0: Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show.
1: But the interesting thing about Git that I didn't understand at first is, like I said, you can have different branches. So you can have a master branch that is your live site or app. You could do something like create a develop branch where, okay, I'm making changes, but these aren't ready to go live yet. These are just for me to work on right now, but I don't want them to pollute my live copy, so I'm keeping them separate. So you would create a branch. You could call it develop. You would work on that. What I didn't understand before was Git's terminology is you check out a specific branch. Like, you check out the master branch, or you check out the develop branch. And I, I asked Vic, I'm like, why do they call it checkout? You're basically just looking at a different branch. Why do they call it checking out? But, but I was wrong. It actually is checking out, so when you go to look at that local repository in your file system, you will see the files from whichever branch you have checked out. So if you're working in develop, you'll see your files that you're working on. But if you then check out the master branch and you go back to that in the file system, poof, you see your actual live this is for the world version of the master branch. So it also protects you from screwing things up because it literally swaps the stuff out that you're working on depending on which branch you have checked out in your Git client.
0: Happy New Year, and welcome back to another episode of iPad Pros. In this episode, you'll be hearing the second part of the conversation that was featured in the last episode with Scott. In this part, we're going to be diving into Hugo, Git, Secure Shellfish, Working Copy, AI Writer, Prop2, Scriptable, Reg X Lab, and a few other mini topics. If you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Every review goes a really long way in helping others discover the show by helping the podcast show up better in search. You can also financially support the show over at patreon.com slash ipadpros. Every dollar is of huge help and is greatly appreciated. Thank you if you currently support the show that way or have in the past. You can send your feedback to me at ipadprospodcast at gmail.com. And with that, here's my interview with Scott. Enjoy.
2: I want to move on to a couple different topics. Actually, a lot of different topics here. I want to lay some foundational things just so everyone has if they're not familiar with these services or tools, so these apps make more sense. The first thing I want to cover is just Hugo. You currently use WordPress for a lot of your sites, but you've spoken a little bit about Hugo. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a bit on what this platform is and the advantages over, say, a WordPress?
1: Yeah, basically, probably a lot of people are familiar with the concept of a static site generator because that concept has been growing in popularity. Basically, the idea is... Your websites serve up basically HTML, and they're not dynamically generated every time somebody loads the page. When the web first came out, it was all straight HTML. There was nothing dynamic. Then people found a way to do CGI scripts that would take place on the server so that you could dynamically generate some of the content of the page and change things based on what was going on with some piece of data at the time the person loaded the page. So that's great. Then we got JavaScript in the client, and unfortunately that's bloated to uh, fill the universe. But it's useful. Now we're kind of headed the other way, where people don't necessarily want their pages being dynamically rendered all the time because it adds load to the server, it takes time, It inc- sometimes it can increase the size of the page, although that's usually JavaScript on the client. But And so people want a good performing website that can handle a ton of traffic, and static site generation will do that. However, static site generators have, have been very simplistic and not been able to give you a lot of the functionality that dynamically rendered sites can do. And so Hugo actually takes... I was kind of skeptical at first, but uh, John Chigi was using it for his Engineered network and his podcasts. Then, when Vic Hudson started expanding some of the podcasts that were on the Bubble Sword Empire, we call it jokingly, he decided to use Hugo too. And I was like, oh, I don't know about this. But I'm actually really impressed with it. It allows you to do a lot of different things that you would not have been able to do with a static site previously and add just the standard normal functionality that you want, but still have a statically generated site. And it uses Markdown files. It compiles those. It creates your site from them. So basically, all you have to do is upload a markdown file. It sees the changes. You can have a cron job on the server that just goes and checks however often you want, and it'll say, oh, something changed. I'm going to recompile the site, and it'll do it real fast for you. So that's basically what the idea of Hugo is, is giving you the performance and security of a static site, because there's nothing to hack if it's just HTML files. I mean, you can still hack the server, but you can't get in through some weakness in the code that's dynamically generating the pages or through a SQL exploit because there's no SQL server or no MySQL database. And then it gives you those advantages, but it also gives you a lot of advantages of having a website that can actually do stuff besides just display text.
2: And do you see a future where someone might write a CMS for it, whether it's just a local thing on an iPad or a Mac that then uploads that text file to the server to update? Or is this, I think, going to just live as um, something, a tool that more developer-oriented people that can write their entire site in Markdown be able to handle.
1: I don't foresee any custom apps coming out around Hugo. Like, I created a shortcut that takes care of all that for me, and basically I use uh, an app called Shellfish, which lets you SFTP to a site, and you can see that in Files app. And so, because Shortcuts has access to all the locations available in the Files app, then... Anything that you've connected to with FTP, which is basically just secure encrypted FTP, basically anything, any server that you have set up for that, that you can access through the Shellfish app, you also get in files and therefore you can access it through shortcuts. And Shellfish also has some actions available to it in the shortcuts app. You're basically just manipulating the files however you would edit any markdown file in whatever editor you want, however you want to do it and then all you have to do is get it to the server. And how you want to do that depends on do you want to do it automatically or do you want to manually do it? Because you can use things like panics, code. It used to be Coda. Now I think it's just called code. And you can FTP within that too, but But I don't see anybody doing anything like this because it's not like you have to edit the files within a certain system. All you basically have to do is get the file onto the server. So it's like one small piece. I don't really see a whole CMS or anything.
2: And setting up the visual look of the website, is there, I guess there'd be a a tutorial on how to, the initial setup to make it look good. Like WordPress has a lot of templates. What's that kind of system?
1: That's where Hugo is a lot more complicated. Like you can download themes from GitHub. I'm just learning about how to do this for myself right now. So I'm, I'm starting to work on converting my own sites to Hugo. And the themes make some assumptions about how your content is laid out. And so Hugo is a very smart system. And you can tell it, here's how my system works. Here's where my stuff is. Here's Here's what I want you to use for templates. Here's what I want you to use to compile these things. Here's an archetype file that I can use to create a new post, for example, or a new podcast episode or something like that. But some of the themes make certain assumptions, and so you might apply a theme that breaks something from your previous theme, and then it is a little bit more work. Hugo is not user-friendly in that way right now. I think most people might find that just because they choose a theme, they still have some work to do to get it to work. Okay.
2: And then another kind of foundational thing I want to cover is Git repositories. Can you share what those are for those that don't really use them, and if there are uses for... I guess even non-developers out there, what you might use these for?
1: Yeah, basically, so I'm kind of a newcomer to Git myself. I've known about it for a long time, just like a lot of people who work in tech or have a lot of programmer friends or whatever probably have heard of these kind of things. Because basically it's a source control solution and a versioning solution. So that when you're updating files, you're not just making a bunch of changes without traceability and without being able to roll back changes if you need to. Git is actually a pretty flexible system that allows you to have different branches of a project. You could have a master branch that you have as your published app. Or your live website, for example, if you use it for a website like Vic does with Bubble Sort, Or your writing projects. You could have writing projects and you want to keep track of changes that you make. Especially if you're collaborating with other people, you could also have changes that they make merged in. And you would have the ability to see what they've committed to the project and what their changes are. And you could roll those back. It gives you control of changes that you wouldn't normally have on what are essentially text files. Because it doesn't really matter if you're writing a program or you're writing for a website or you're publishing podcast episodes it's all text. And so keeping track of changes in that are going to be very difficult unless you have a system that can handle that for you. And Git can do that. So it can be useful for people who have a website and they want to be able to way to restore it if something bad happens. And they just want to keep track of the changes that they're making. So that if something breaks, for example, if you do something with a Hugo and you find out that, oh, this change I made to this file broke this thing. Well, guess what? You can just roll back that change very simply. Also, It gives me the ability, for example, to collaborate with Vic on the website where when I publish an episode, not only does it go to the server, it also goes to his Git repository on GitHub, his private repository. And basically that means that if he ever has to restore the site, that episode is also in there now. It also means that he can have a development branch where he's adding new features to the website and any changes that I'm making also get rolled into that branch so that when he rolls out his development changes, it doesn't undo some of the stuff that we've done on the live site in the meantime. It's basically a version control and source control kind of rolled into one, and it's it's really powerful for collaboration, but it's also powerful just for tracking changes.
2: Could authors use this potentially for working with an editor? Is that a use of Git at all?
1: It would depend on your editor, but the answer is yes. I know that they do that at Mac Stories, and when I first heard that, I hadn't started using it myself at the time and i was a little confused about how that would work but now i totally get it yeah they actually do use git like if somebody's collaborating with somebody else on a story or they're editing each other they do save those things into a git repository so that they can track the changes that are being made and also just for the author themselves, because they write huge projects they work on things like for months at a time sometimes when they're doing a major review of an upcoming os or something and so they want to be able to if they become dissatisfied with the approach they're taking or they want to make some changes or they just want to keep track of all the files that are involved, including the images and stuff like that. All that stuff can go in their Git repository, and it works really well for them. So yeah, absolutely, an author could use it. I don't know that a lot of authors would use it. It certainly works well in the context of writing for a website. I don't think yeah. it would be something that a, guy, a person writing a book would be able to give their publisher. You know, it wouldn't work for that kind of thing.
2: There's more purpose-driven tools for
1: that. Correct, yeah. Not to mention that a lot of people in that industry just wouldn't even know what you're talking about or how to use <laughs> right. it. Right? So. Yeah.
2: So you mentioned Secure Shellfish. Is there anything else you want to mention about that app that we didn't cover as far as sending, you know, text from it to uh, Hugo from this?
1: Well, basically, Secure Shellfish lets you connect to a server and look at it in Files app as though it were just something else in your Files app folder structures so basically normally when you FTP you open a program you make a connection you look at their folders you definitely feel the difference between your computer and their computer I'm going to a remote computer now I'm dragging this file to my computer you know you you see it that way but with shellfish what it's trying to do is make it feel like it's just part of your file system and it works quite well the developer of this also is the developer of working copy which is another app that I like to use. He's a very good programmer. He writes these really nice apps. There are some problems with it right now, though. One of them is, and I think he's fixed that, he's working on some fixes for it, but I found that when I upload great big archive files, like when I edit a podcast, I will, in Ferrite, as you know, you can create archives of those edited podcasts. Basically what that will do is it'll take all the source files that you used, plus the edited project, and it will put it into a basically what's a zip file and then you can save that archive so that you don't have to keep all your individual source files you don't have to keep your project you can delete that stuff but you have an archive of it should you ever need to do anything with it again and i upload those files to the server for Vic just so he can have them on hand he wants to keep a An archive of every podcast that's published, basically. I was getting some timeouts trying to upload those, because those would be like 500 to 700 megabytes. So he is working on a fix for that. The other issue that I ran into, which I kind of alluded to before, was when I'm using my shortcut to kind of auto-publish a podcast episode for me, I was running into issues when it was just simply trying to upload an MP3 file to Vic's server. And the MP3 files aren't that big. I'm talking about 40 to 60 megs. But he thinks that he has some solutions for that, too, and he's working on it. So it's almost there in terms of shortcuts, but for just normal use within the files app, it's absolutely brilliant. It's super nice. And is
2: having side-by-side windows
1: and files app
2: a really helpful thing now with Shellfish and being able to access Oh, absolutely. Local? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Very much so.
2: Very much so. What,
1: I guess a little
2: tangent with iPadOS, are you using multi-window in general? Like what apps are you finding most useful there?
1: Yeah, it took me a while to get into that just because I'd never had that before, right? So it took me a while to figure out and another one that took me a while to figure out was Slide Over. I didn't use it very much, but now recently I am starting to use it quite a bit. I will say that, uh, what was it? Was it iOS 13.2 where we were having the issue with apps constantly refreshing and they weren't holding their... Yeah. When I was doing that, Slide Over was just useless to me. Like I was trying to use Dropbox Paper. We used that for our podcast notes. And I would try to use that, then use other apps. And I was using that in slide overview. And whenever I would pull it back over, it would be refreshing again. It was totally useless. But they fixed that problem. <laughs> it's useful again. And so, yeah, I actually am using side-by-side a lot. I'm using it with text editor and Safari, t- different text editors. I'm using it with shortcuts and things like Scriptable. I'm using it with shortcuts and my regular expression uh, program that I like to craft regular expressions in i'm using it with dropbox paper i'm using it with uh i'm using it with a lot of different apps I've used it with uh, DataJar and Shortcuts before when I want to see what change my shortcut is having on the data stored in DataJar. So, yeah, I use it a lot. One common one that I actually use it for is pretty simple. I have this uh, website that I'm subscribed to called WaniKani, and it's basically for Japanese kanji practice. And I will have that on one side, and I'll have Safari on the other so that I can be on the website so that as I'm going through my practice, I don't want to cheat, but what I sometimes do is... If I think I know what a kanji means, but I can't quite remember, sometimes I'll type in the phrase that I think it means, and if it comes up, I'll know I'm right, and then I'll proceed. So I do side-by-side with that. I do a lot of side-by-side now that I didn't used to do.
2: Okay, yeah. No, I'm finding useful, especially slide-overs, and it's something I didn't really like that much before it Mm -hmm. became what it is now because you just would constantly be needing to swap that app out, and Yeah. So right. It's, it's much better now.
1: Yeah. When I was stealing my daughter's iPad from her, we were still on iOS 12. And I was like, I don't get Slide Over. I don't understand it because I, now I want this other app in Slide Over. Now I have to pretend like this app has to go away. And now this app's going to take its place. But then when I want to switch back, it just became really inconvenient. I did not like it at all at that point. And yeah. one thing that I would like to change with Slide Over is I don't necessarily always like the exact size of that Slide Over window. I would like to be able to widen it out just a little tiny bit sometimes.
2: Sure. So, anyways, back to
1: apps and things like
2: that. Working Copy. Uh, So how is this app used in your workflows and what is this app for, generally speaking?
1: Well, Working Copy is a Git client. And so we were talking about Git earlier, which is basically a versioning and, and source control system. Now, Git itself is a command line thing. However, most people don't use Git from a command line, although I was doing that earlier today because I just learned how to take an existing local repository, and then push it up onto GitHub. I hadn't done that before. I'd always pulled it down the other way. So it's a Git client for iOS, and so I can... Going back to Vic's Bubble Sort empire, he has a private repository on GitHub that has his website in it. So anytime a change is made, he pushes it to the repository, and so that always reflects the current state of his website. On the Mac, I use a free, full-featured, free app called Fork, which is a Git client, but on iOS... I use working copy. And what it lets me do is it lets me stay in sync with him, as well as when I publish a podcast episode for him, I can update the local repository and then I can push those changes to GitHub so that now he will have them next time he syncs and merges his local repository and and GitHub. So basically, it is, well, it's kind of like Dropbox, I guess, because the way that most people use Dropbox is they run a program on their computer. And so they have the files locally, but then it also syncs it with what's really in Dropbox in the cloud. So the Dropbox cloud is the truth, and then wherever they have Dropbox installed, it gets that information from the cloud. And so it's kind of like that.
2: So true to the name, Working Copy provides you a working copy of your Git repository, and when it connects to the internet, it then... Pushes any changes and kind of matches them together.
1: Yeah, you have to do that manually because that's how Git works. You decide when you're going to push your changes, and you also have to check for changes on the origin, they call it. But the interesting thing about Git that I didn't understand at first is, like I said, you can have different branches. So you can have a master branch that is your live site or app. You could do something like create a develop branch where, okay, I'm making changes, but these aren't ready to go live yet. These are just for me to work on right now, but I don't want them to pollute my live copy, so I'm keeping them separate. So you would create a branch. You could call it develop. You would work on that. What I didn't understand before was Git's terminology is you check out a specific branch, like you check out the master branch. Branch or you check out the develop branch. And I, I asked Vic, I'm like, why do they call it checkout? You're basically just looking at a different branch. Why do they call it checking out? But but I was wrong, it actually is checking out. So when you go to look at that local repository in your file system, you will see the files from whichever branch you have checked out. So if you're working in develop, you'll see your files that you're working on. But if you then check out the master branch and you go back to that in the file system, poof, you see your actual live this is for the world version of the master branch. So it also protects you from screwing things up because it literally swaps the stuff out that you're working on, depending on which branch you have checked out in your Git client. So it's pretty cool. Very cool.
2: Anything else on working copy before we move on?
1: Just that the shortcuts integration is really nice, and Anders has been actively he's actually been responding to requests from me quite nicely. So I mean, I guess everybody's always everybody always thinks developers are doing a great job when they fulfill requests that they have. But he's adding more actions to working copy that can be used within shortcuts. And it's basically stuff that I, I asked him to do, so that I could do the workflow that I want to do. And he's making that happen. So now you will be able to create new branches merge branches, and delete branches from within shortcuts. So it's going to be super nice. Very cool. And then
2: with working copy or using IA Writer, so how do those two apps kind of talk to each other?
1: Yeah, well, the cool thing about IA Writer, in the library view, you can see different sources. And you can say from other apps. And you can go and look at... Okay, so if you say open and then you say open other, you can basically look at what looks like a files, a little files window to choose from. And because working copy integrates with the files app and it becomes another source of documents. So basically in files app, you can see your working copy, whichever current branch you have checked out in working copy. You can also do that from IA Writer. So let's say I want to publish a podcast episode. One way that I could do it is that I could check out my branch. I could uh, go into IA Writer. I could open the library. I could find the working copy thing, the entry there in the list. Like right now, I have several different sources available in files. I have iCloud Drive. I have on my iPad, which we all have. I have Secure Shellfish, which will get me to the servers that I'm connected to, and then I have Yoink and Documents and Dropbox, blah blah blah. But I also have Working Copy. So whichever. Repository and branch I have checked out at the time I will see when I go into working copy. So if I want to make a change, I can use IA Writer to just directly add or edit a file right then and there, and then all I have to do is save that change in and working and copy and then push it to the repository. So basically, I can use IA Writer as a text editor for for updating it in conjunction with working copy. So it can just become part of the system, I guess, is what I'm saying.
2: Because it uses the open in place. Method of working with files. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: And then anything else in IRRattery before we move on to Code Editor?
1: No, I'm. I Writer's an interesting one, though. I don't know if what you use for a text editor, but have you used IA Writer in the past, or do you use it? Now? It was
2: the very first one I used, and then over the years, I've migrated the different tools. Uh, Ulysses, and Agenda, and Drafts are probably the three main ones at this point that I'm using. Right.
1: Yeah. I think. I think. I don't know. IA Writer's an interesting one. For a while, I thought it was going to die, because they were making some weird changes with it, and then they they changed their minds and went back to their. Previous model, yeah, and I used right Byword now. for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, same, <laughs> same, same. Yeah, I think a lot of us went through the same uh, right progression same of different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the the nice thing about IA Writer is it's not subscription, and it allows you to access all these different sources, which I find mm-hmm. to be really flexible. Yeah, and the open in place is a powerful thing
2: when apps do that. Uh, there's some image yeah. editors that do that really well, and yeah, it's a great when you can find text there that does that as too as well. Yeah. Um, so code editor. This is my panic and is this previously coda is that what this app is that is correct yeah okay. it was previously coda so There's a lot of text editors as we've talked about where are the advantages of code editor versus you know uh, secure shellfish and working cop right and all the, yeah
1: well this is one where when it comes to text editors i have clear delineations in my mind for example i use something like day one to do journaling and especially one thing that i enjoy doing with that is uh I write up memories, including photos and videos to show my daughter later for her enjoyment so she can remember stuff. So I'm making journals like that. Then I use drafts for sometimes composing stuff that I want to do something with, but usually it's for stuff that I want to keep permanently that I don't really want to store anywhere else. And I just want it marked down. I want it lightweight. Then I use IA Writer for writing blog posts, sometimes for editing podcast episodes. But uh, And then where Coda comes in is... Actually, for, for coding. So if I want to work on a website, if, if I want to do JavaScript, if I want to do HTML, basically any type of coding outside of if I'm sitting at the Mac working on, you know, playing around with iOS development and Swift because I'll be using Xcode for that. But, but for anything that I could do on the iPad, I'll use Coda. And the reason why is because it understands syntax of different languages. It allows you to do all that stuff. It also has built-in FTP, so it understands the model of, you know, you're doing this. You're probably going to put this on a server. And so I use it for that kind of stuff. So for me, it's definitely related to websites and or programming, and that's it. It's not something that I would ever write a blog post in or journal something in or write a note to myself in. It's just not that kind of app for me.
2: Yeah. And then... Something you use uh, to access your Mac is prompt, Two, and it's for uh-huh. file access. I'm curious, just first off, on your approach to files. So for me, kind of everything lives in iCloud Drive, and I'm at like 1.5 terabytes. I'm still under that threshold of I can actually fit everything there still. Have you gone past that threshold? Do you have a different approach to files? What's your strategy there?
1: I have the biggest, whatever it is, two terabyte or whatever with my family. So I do that. Where prompt comes in is I can access my Mac with it, yeah, but I can also access other servers with it. It's basically just a, an SSH client. And so SSH basically is a secure way of getting to another computer's shell. So basically it's command line stuff. You're typing commands. And so you can do that on your Mac, because your Mac is a Unix machine, and you you can pop a terminal window open on your Mac, and you can type Unix commands, and you can have fun all day. Well, you can SSH to your Mac, and a lot of times what I like to do at night, when I don't want my Mac to wake up and shine its beautiful 27-inch screen down the hallway and wake up my family, is I'll just SSH into it and use text, because it doesn't turn on the screen, it doesn't do anything like that. Whereas if I use an app like Screens, that thing is going to become a floodlight, and so... Sometimes if I want to do something real quick on the Mac, I'll use prompt to do it that way. But I also use it to do things on web servers real quick that I want to do and stuff like that. So basically for me, it's just, is there something I need to do on a remote computer that I can do on the command line? If the answer is yes, then prompt two is the right tool for the job at that time.
2: And it turns your iPad into a terminal, like all terminal commands would work within here or are there advantages to being at the computer using the terminal app that you'd have on the Mac?
1: No, it's no different. Like if you're if you're connecting it to your Mac, you are at the terminal at your Mac as far as what you would type in is concerned because you're basically accessing your Mac's Unix shell at that point. So, whatever shell you have set up for yourself when you log in, be it Z shell or bash, you're going to be using that and the same for a remote server. Like if you have bash configured as your shell on your remote web host, when you log in there, that's what you're going to be doing. So, you literally are using the other computer when you're logged into it. You're just using your ipad and prompt as a window into that machine basically
2: and it would support tabs or multi-windows like you could in terminal on mac
1: does support multi-windows it's not very good at persisting connections though if you go away from it and come back on that front they definitely need to improve it i don't know if they're going to i feel like they could i feel like it hasn't really been updated to take full advantage of ios 13 yet that's something that i would really love to see from them
2: yeah okay uh next up scriptable and I, you can listen back to episode 61 of this podcast to kind of dive more in depth into everything this app is. Yeah. Uh, but for you, what what is this app to you and what are some cool ways you're using it?
1: Right now, I'm mostly playing around with it. I haven't found one killer use for it. But what I like is it, it scratches that itch that I was telling you about earlier of sometimes I just want to freaking type in code. I don't want to drag blocks around. And it's excellent for that. And Simon actually has a lot of example apps inside of Scriptable that you can look at to see things that he's done with it. One of the things that it does let you do that's useful for shortcuts is you were talking earlier about how if you want to access files from shortcuts, you have two choices. One of them is it's going to get saved. If you don't want a dialog box for you to have to manually choose, it's going to get saved in the shortcuts folder. That's, there's nothing you can do about that. Or you get a dialog box and you have to manually choose. Right. And there's low time with, yeah, I have
2: a good five or ten seconds where it's loading that window of here's all your folders because it has to do a lot of thinking at this point still.
1: That's right. Now, with Scriptable, what you can do is you can access different files and folders outside of that. And the way you do it is you create a bookmark. So if you're doing it from within shortcuts, you have to create the bookmark each time that you do it. But if you're do- if you're just running Scriptable by itself and you're just going to run a script, you can have some pre-created bookmarks that can point to anywhere in the file system, anything that's available in Files app. You can create a bookmark for that folder or that file. And then from within a scriptable script in javascript you can reference the name of your bookmark and you will have direct access to that folder or that file so it gets around that restriction and so even if all you do is use scriptable just for that it's it's very handy
2: and what are some situations where you would need to change kind of the file extension for a file
1: Yeah, so part of it was my own lack of knowledge, was with shortcuts, I don't know if it's a bug or if it's intentional, but with shortcuts, even if you you save a file automatically rather than doing it through the dialog box, and it's text, and it knows it's text, it doesn't matter what you tell it to name it, it's not going to give it a .md extension or whatever, it's going to give it a .txt extension, it just does not care. Now, subsequently, I found out that you can set the name of, so there's a set name as brick. And if you pass your document through that first before you automatically save it, it will honor the name. But I didn't know that at the time, so I was using Scriptable to set my file extension for me, and that would honor whatever I was setting it up as. Now, I was changing the file extension between .md and .text back and forth because I was finding that quick preview wasn't opening certain files because it didn't know that they were text files and it just wouldn't let me. You know how sometimes when you're in files app you just want to get a quick preview? Yeah. It wasn't opening some of the files that I was trying to quick preview. So what I would do is I would just say okay that's fine and I would run a little script and it would just change the extension to text real quick. I would get my quick preview. I would see what I wanted to see. I would like a lot of times what I was trying to do was see what format or what strings were inside a text file so that i could write my shortcut or my script to search for that stuff and then when i was done i would run my little shortcut and it would change the extension back for me because one thing that we don't have in files app in ios is the ability to see (laughs) or change file extensions and that's something that you know I don't know, people with computers do every day. So gotcha. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. But I haven't really touched Scriptable's potential yet. I've only used it for simple things like that. But it's the kind of thing where if you want to program and you have an iPad and you you want to mess around with code, Scriptable is a really excellent way to do it. Okay. And then the final topic I want to touch on here are regular expressions and, you know, Mm -hmm. the
2: app you use to work with that. So for those that aren't familiar with regular expressions, what Are these?
1: Well, regular expressions are really complicated things that will drive you insane, but they're extremely useful at the same time. Okay. So, what they allow you to do is they allow you to search for things inside of text files, but they allow you to search for patterns where you might know that I have a URL and I know that I have an HTTP and I know that I have a colon and I know I have a forward slash forward slash, but beyond that, I don't know exactly what's going to be in that URL. And it will allow you to craft an expression that will satisfy that search, but without knowing what's in between there, but also not running over and matching to things that extend past your URL in the text file. So it's super handy when you know that certain things are going to happen in your text file, but you don't know exactly what the text is going to be, what the content is going to be. So it's for things where you're going to get varying responses, or you have different things each time in a text file, and you want to match it, you want to split it. For example, when I created my uh, data jar shortcut to put my favorite podcast in. Remember that I had all that stuff in a draft to begin with? Yeah. So I wanted to write a, a shortcut that would take my draft, take every single one of those, and put it into data jar in the format that I wanted. But because it was in Markdown in my draft, basically what I had to do was I had to get it to recognize each element for what it was. This is the URL. This is the title. This is the episode. This is the date. You know, stuff like that. Relatively simple. But every single podcast had its own podcast name, had its own episode name, had its own, you name it, its own URL, etc. So I had to use regular expressions to find the match for each piece that I wanted so that I could put that in the appropriate place inside the episode data inside data jar. And so I used regular expressions for that. That was one case where I did that. Okay.
2: And the app you use to work with these is called X Lab. Mm-hmm. So how's this app work? And what's the advantage of this app versus other ways of dealing with these?
1: Right. Well, basically, when you're crafting regular expressions, they can be very difficult to read and understand what they're doing. And it can be very... And and sometimes there's lots of different ways to do the same thing, or there's, there's ways to do something that seem to work, but if you're not careful, you'll match more text than you mean to, depending on... You know, you can come into situations where, oh, yeah, it worked in that one test case I gave it, but... Once I turned it loose on my real file, it didn't actually work the way I intended it. It's like any other type of programming. So there are online a lot of different regular expression testers, and there's other iOS apps that let you do regular expression testing. But basically what it lets you do is it lets you create an entry in here. And the nice thing about this app is it lets you save all your regular expressions that you're testing, as well as the sample data that you're giving it to see if your regular expression is working. Some of the other ones, they'll let you put in a regular expression, they'll let you modify it, and they'll let you put in sample data so, of course, you can see if it's working, but they don't let you save each of those sessions individually that you can come back to and look at later. So this one lets you do that. And basically what it will do is it gives you a screen, and at the top it has a space for your regular expression, and you start typing in your regular expression what you want it to, you know, basically you're telling it, here's what I'm looking for in this text, and then below you put in your sample text text, and what you can do is you can take your actual data that you know you're going to be trying to parse and you know you're going to be trying to split up or find certain pieces of. You can paste that in there and then you can craft your regular expression and it will highlight matches for you. The beautiful thing about regular expressions is that with one regular expression, you can grab multiple pieces of data by putting parentheses around specific parts of the regular expression to say, okay, I'm searching for this whole entire regular expression, but This thing in parentheses, I want to grab that. I want that available to me for future use. And you can do that multiple times. So, for example, I have one that grabs me four different pieces of data, four different strings that match throughout a text file. So it'll happen, you know, over and over and over again. It'll grab me everything that matches this part plus everything that matches the second part plus the third part plus the fourth part. So then in shortcuts, I can say, give me group one, give me group two, give me group three, group four. So group one might be The episode name, group two might be the podcast name, group three might be the URL, and group four might be the date, for example. The beautiful thing about this app is it shows you very clearly not only what is matching your overall entire regular expression, but what is matching each of those individual captures. So so you know that you're going to get the results that you want when you paste this thing into a shortcut or a program or whatever you're going to do with this regular expression. Okay. So it's like kind of a playpen to kind of figure out... In a exactly. kind of
2: science, not not a scientific, but uh, kind of like a test lab for all this stuff.
1: It, yes, it really is. It's really nice. Okay,
2: very cool. And for those that are new to
1: kind of all this stuff,
2: what are some kind of resources to kind of learn more about these kind of tools in general for people?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a lot of good sites online for, for regular expressions, for example. Regular expressions are something that... A lot of people, even people who do automation and scripting and maybe even programming may not get into. When I started at the place I work, I work in semiconductors and everything used to run on Unix back then. And I think a lot more people were exposed to regular expressions just because of that. But... There's different websites like rexegg.com is one. It's R-E-X-E-G-G.com. I'll give you some links for some of the good regular expression sites that I've been using. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, those will be in the show notes. And there's also, as far as Git goes, there is uh, a site called Atlassian.com. It's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N. And they've got a pretty good tutorial about what Git is how it works, how to set up a repository, that's also a good one. So that that website works pretty well for exploring Git. And then I find that, of course, uh, Stack Overflow is a pretty good source of information, just as it always is for everything programming related. Well, thank you. And anything we didn't cover yet that you'd like to before we wrap it up? I don't think so. I think I've probably talked more than enough for everybody's tastes. Well, excellent. Where can people find what you're up to online? Yep, Uh, right now you can find me on Twitter at ScottAW. I'm also a minor part of the Bubble Sort empire that Vic is trying to build over there. So we're doing uh, the Bubble Sort podcast is three people. It's Vic Hudson, it's John Chiji, it's Clay Daly. And they have an excellent, really good podcast where it's the three of them talking. And then in addition to that, we also have Bubble Sort TV, which is different people talking about different TV shows or movies that they enjoy. And Vic and I have been covering Mr. Robot lately. You can find me at tv.bubblesort.show for that.
2: Great well thank you so much for your time today uh, it's been great chatting all, right. with all this stuff
1: yeah thanks a lot and i do want to say by the way i uh i wasn't joking when i said that not only is your podcast not background material i listen to it actively and i do save many many of your episodes for future reference because you've, you've you're doing a really great job with it and it's it's super useful and informative content and i've learned uh, when i was preparing to buy an ipad i actually learned a lot of about how I was going to use it and what I was going to do and maybe what apps I wanted to investigate just from listening to this podcast. So I really want to say thanks. Thanks. Really appreciate that. That means a lot.
0: Well, that was my conversation with Scott. As much as the top of the episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Every review really does go a long way in helping others discover the show. You can financially support the show over at patreon.com slash ipadpros. And thank you if you currently support the show over at Patreon. It is really, really appreciated. With that, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to everyone again real soon.